You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us and then um, we'll get started. God, we just once again want to praise you and thank you that you have given us this church to be a part of. God, I'm thankful that we can come together um, this morning and study your word together. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we seek to better understand your plans for your people in the future. God, you have told us to study these things. You have revealed these things to us in Scripture. And so, God, we are confessing a a humble desire this morning to know you better through your word. So, God, I pray that you would grant that to us through the Holy Spirit. Um, God, that you would bring encouragement where it's needed. um, That you would bring clarity where we all need it, God, as we seek to understand you. And, uh, God, I pray that you would just be with our time specifically this morning, God, that we would um, be able to learn together. God, that you would allow me to speak clearly. Um, And God, that you would allow us to um, spur one another on as we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You'll remember about a month ago, we started looking at these verses. And then we had kind of an extended break because the um, park had been reserved. So we couldn't meet here. And then um, Tyson was gracious enough to speak for us last week. But continued the theme of looking at the second coming of Christ as he looked at our blessed hope and the mystery that God has revealed to us of how he is um, working to save a people for himself. We come to verse 13 of chapter 4. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So initially, right off the bat here, we see some clear instruction that Paul is giving to this church. He says, the reason we're talking about end time stuff, the reason we're talking about the return of Jesus Christ is for the purpose of informing you, educating you, helping you to understand um, a a better knowledge of who God is. So, So we're wanting to inform you, help you to understand With the purpose so that you don't sorrow as those who don't understand, who aren't informed about uh, future things. Okay, so there's a purpose in why um, Paul is instructing this church about the end times. He says, I want you to be informed. I want you to know about the future so that you don't sorrow like people who don't understand. He goes on to say, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him Those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another. With these words. So kind of a threefold purpose here for why God, why Paul is revealing to them information about the end times. He says, I want you to be informed for the purpose of not sorrowing as someone who is uninformed. I want you to know about the end times. I want you to know about the future so that you can be encouraged. But not just for yourself, Paul says. He encourages his church at Thessalonica. He says, I want you to know this so that you can encourage one another as you get together. As you meet together as a local church, as you interact with people outside this church, that you'll be able to encourage people with the truth of the return of Jesus Christ. Now, I told you that there's some difference of opinion about how to even approach these verses. That there's a difference of opinion about 
um, whether this is talking about the rapture, whether this is talking about the second, second coming, the return of Jesus, where he comes and begins to put an end to history as we know it and ushers us into eternity. I told you from, from everything that I see from Scripture, as a church, we want to approach this as the second coming of Jesus. Recognizing humbly that um, there's good people that would disagree with us. There, there are good pastors and teachers that I listen to that would teach this differently. There's good pastors and teachers that I listen to that would teach this the exact same way that we're going to look at it. There's probably at least three different ways to approach the remaining verses in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're going to start getting into um, some description about things that are to come, specifically talking about the man of lawlessness, which a lot of times is identified as the anti-Christ. And so I want to, in, in approaching this, recognizing that there's a lot of disagreement between really good people that agree on everything else, basically. I want to approach it knowing that um, we're going to do this as best we can to show you where, where I lean right now, where, where our church is kind of leaning right now somewhat in leadership, recognizing as a whole that we don't have to agree on all this stuff to be unified together as a body. I'm going to share with you some things today that we have to agree on. That to, to, to feel good about being here at Sovereign Hope, you've got to agree on this. To essentially be a Christian, you've got to agree on this. And then we're going to look at some things that we don't have to agree on. That there's some difference of opinion about. And we're going to try to understand this as best we can, leaving some room for potential error. Leaving room for the potential that maybe we're, maybe we're wrong about this a little bit. And I, and I love in the guys that I've been reading and studying, such a humble spirit in them where they say, you know, to, my, to, the, to the best of my ability in understanding Scripture, this is what I believe it's teaching. But I recognize that I may be wrong. One incident would be John Piper, who, who leans towards viewing these verses and just end times in general in a certain way. He's got a really good friend that he lets speak at his Desiring God ministry, like allows him to speak on the website, that type of thing, who disagrees with John Piper's end time stuff. And he gives him a, flat, a platform to teach his own views on the end times. So that's kind of, to me, a picture of John Piper saying, this is where I lean, this is what I see. But I also recognize I might be wrong, so I'm okay with bringing in good, solid people to teach a different perspective, realizing that I may be wrong on some of this. And so, for me as your pastor, I want us to approach this as humbly as we can, to, to seek to understand what Scripture is saying, to rally around the things that we can agree on, and to try as best we can to understand some of the things that we might disagree on. But to do it in a way where we stay unified, we stay encouraged, um, and, and we're really seeking to grasp the main point of the text that we're looking at. So in your notes, um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at what we know as eschatology. Eschatology being defined as the study of end times or end things. And again, the only reason we're really specifically talking about this is because we're teaching through 1 Thessalonians verse by verse. And when we come to this, um, it necessitates that we talk about it. In talking about end times as, as a whole, as a, as a big picture type of thing, there's some things that we can agree on, some truth that we need to agree on as Christians. Number one in your notes, Jesus' return is certain. Whether there's a rapture or not a rapture, the fact that Jesus is coming back is absolutely certain in Scripture. And we can agree on that, we can rally around that, we can be encouraged by that. 
that Jesus is coming back. Number two, Jesus' return will be visible and physical. There's some people that would like to spiritualize the return of Jesus. That he's not coming back physically, but that his rule and reign will be evident. And, and that's what the return of Jesus is. But we know that when Jesus left his disciples, when he ascended back into heaven, two angels came and told his disciples, he's coming back just like he left. He's coming back in his physical body, the the resurrected body that you saw him come out of the grave in. He's coming back physically, and he's coming back in a way that you will see. You will know that he has come back because you saw him leave. He will come back physically and visibly. Number three, there will be a resurrection of believers to eternal reward And unbelievers to eternal punishment. There's going to be a resurrection for believers and unbelievers. Believers to eternal reward. Unbelievers to eternal punishment. And there's disagreement by good people about what that looks like. Do we spend eternity in heaven? Do we spend eternity on a new earth? Do do, uh, unbelievers spend eternity in hell? Or does God judge them and and they they just cease to exist? There's varying opinions about what that looks like. But what we do agree on is that unbelievers will be judged for eternity. That believers will be rewarded for eternity. Number four, death will be defeated. Scripture is very clear that there is coming a time. There is coming a time in history where we will no longer die. We will no longer experience the sorrow of death. That death will be defeated by the work of Christ. That we will be resurrected to new glorified bodies that do not die. And we will never experience death again as we are ushered into eternity with our King forever. We can agree on that. And number five, and this is really important too. All of God's plans will be accomplished as He intended. What we admit is is that we may not fully understand what God's plans are. We're going to try to understand what God's plans are. But what we can agree on is that God knows what his plans are, and he will accomplish those plans. None of God's plans, none of God's intentions with the end times will be thwarted. Nothing that God wants to do will be stopped. Now, we may think that God wants to do something that he doesn't have any desire to do. We might misinterpret a passage of scripture and say, well, this is what God plans to do in the future. And and we may find out that, no, that's not what God intended to do in the future. We misread that. We misunderstood that. But what we can agree on is that God knows what he plans to do, and he will accomplish it. There's no question about that. Now, some things that we can disagree on. These are important things that kind of shape how we understand scripture, but it's not necessary To be a Christian and agree on these things, and it's not necessary to be a member of this church and have to agree on these things. First is the timing of Jesus' return. The timing of Jesus' return. Some people believe that Jesus' return is is any day now. That Jesus may come back today. There's others that look at Scripture and say, if Jesus wants to come back today, he can. But Scripture seems to indicate that he's probably not coming back for a while. Based on some things that scripture has to say about things happening before Jesus returns. So we could disagree about that. Jesse could say, I think Jesus might be coming back today. Will might say, I don't know, I look at scripture and I think there's still a lot of things that need to happen before Jesus returns. 
And it's okay for them to disagree on that because the thing that they agree on is what? That Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back when he intends to come back. Okay? The second thing that we can um, agree to disagree on is rapture versus no rapture. This isn't a breaking point for us. Because again, we are affirming the fact that Jesus is coming back. That God is going to do what he plans to do. Number three, the timing of revelation. This is a huge thing in regards to understanding the end times. The timing of when the book of Revelation happens. I told you earlier that there's probably three different ways to approach the remaining verses in 1 Thessalonians. Because that's, that's because there's three major views about when the book of Revelation happens. There's the futuristic view. Futuristic view, someone reads the book of Revelation and says, wow, all that stuff happens in the future. Every bit of it. We haven't seen really any of that happen. It's all going to happen in the future. And it's all going to happen like all together. Like the book of Revelation is describing a time in the future that will all kind of happen all together. There's what's known as the preterist view. The preterist view says most of that stuff has already happened. And there's a little bit of stuff that will happen in the future, like the return of Jesus um, and him ushering us into eternity, the resurrection. But most everything else has already happened. People that are, that are approaching it from a preterist view see the fulfillment of the book of Revelation in the fall of Jerusalem, when Rome sacked Jerusalem in AD 70. During that time, there were some oppressive emperors who, if you look close enough, you can see some... Uh, similarities between individuals that are describing the book of Revelation and their hatred towards the church being fulfilled by these emperors. So there's some really good people that approach the book of Revelation saying, most of this stuff's already happened. That, that, that drastically changes how you read the book of Revelation, how you interpret it. If, you, if you're looking at it as already being done or looking at it being done well into the future. The third approach is the historic view. The historic view says the book of Revelation happens over a long period of time. Some of it's going on now. Some of it's already happened. A lot of it will still happen in the future as well. Okay? We can agree to disagree on when those things, uh, or when the timing of the book of Revelation actually happens. And number four, the last thing, the meaning of the millennial reign in Revelation 20. The meaning of the millennial reign in Revelation 20. This is a major sticking point for studying the end times. Revelation chapter 20 describes a thousand year reign where Jesus and his, uh, his people are ruling and Satan is bound. It's a time that happens before the very end when, when Satan is ultimately defeated. Because we're told in Revelation 20 that after this period of time, Satan is ultimately defeated. There's a lot of difference of opinion about when that actually happens. When does the thousand year reign of Jesus happen? And we can agree to disagree on when that actually occurs. Alright, so some things that we, we can rally around, agree on. we gotta, we got to hang tight to this. These are things that will definitely happen from Scripture. Jesus is coming back. There's going to be a resurrection. Death's going to be defeated. God's going to do what he plans to do. Some other things that we kind of look at and we say, we're going to have to work through this maybe over the course of a lifetime to really understand. And we may find points of disagreement. And that's okay. There's points of disagreement between leadership right now about the end times. We, we wholeheartedly affirm the things that we agree on. 
But there's certain things that we're still working through trying to figure out exactly what we think about this. And we're okay with disagreeing about it right now because what we're doing is working towards um, a, a deeper understanding together. Okay? Some reasons why we should seek to understand the end times. Number one is blessing. Number two is encouragement. And number three is purity. I'm going to try to fly through the next stuff really quick because we've already looked at it to some degree so that we can get into um, the last part of today's teaching time. You remember that um, when we first started looking at chapter 4, verse 13, I told you that Paul had prioritized this topic of the end times in his discipleship. We said that he, he had been with the Thessalonians for a maximum of six months, and that in that time with these new believers, he had obviously communicated a lot of things about the end times. He didn't finish because he says, I, want, I need to continue teaching you about this. But as we see in chapter 5, they're working off a foundation of end time stuff. Paul had obviously communicated to them at least a basic foundation of what the future looked like. So if Paul prioritized end time discussion with new believers in the matter of six months, then it necessitates that us as a church plant know about the end times so that we can teach new believers about their future hope that Jesus is coming back. The first reason I give you for why we should seek to understand this is blessing. Scripture tells us there is a blessing for seeking to understand eschatology or end time things. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 7 says, And behold, I am coming soon. This is Jesus talking. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There's blessing for those who study the book of Revelation, who understand it, and who hold to the truths of it. For a lot of us, we grew up in a context where Revelation was the most scary book possible. We had no idea how to approach it or study it or even understand what it means. But Jesus is giving instruction here. He says, blessed is the one who takes the time to understand it, to, to um, soak themselves in it so that they can cling to the truths that are in it. So there's blessing for us trying to understand this together today and in the weeks ahead. Number two, there's encouragement. There's encouragement. The better we understand what God has promised about the future, the more encouraged we will be. See, a lot of people want to look at it and say, ah, gosh, the end time stuff is so confusing. It's so hard to understand. You're admitting to us, Adam, that a lot of really good people who have way more time on their hands to study this, they can't reach an agreement on this. So why in the world should I devote my time to trying to understand this if people who are more smarter than me can't figure it out? The reason is because the more we understand about the end times, the more encouraged we will be to fight sin on a regular basis and cling to what Scripture says is our future hope that Jesus is coming back. The better picture we get of how the end happens, the more encouraged we will be, the, the, greater we will, the greater anticipation we will have for these things to come. The Bible says that Jesus is coming back for those who love His appearing, who are looking forward to His appearing. The way we fight a love for the things of this world is to engross ourselves in the fact that this world is coming to an end, that Jesus is coming back to set things right. So the more we know about the end times, the more encouraged we will be to live the way that God desires for us to. In Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Endurance and encouragement comes from knowing God's word, knowing all of it, not just portions of it, not just the things that are considered easy to understand. We get endurance and encouragement by knowing God through his word. We've already seen from 1 Thessalonians 4.13 this morning that part of Paul's purpose for teaching this is so that the believers will be encouraged and so they can encourage other believers. So encouragement comes from knowing things about the end. And then lastly, purity. Purity, knowledge about the future, allows us to live rightly. Now, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 describes to us that this world is passing away and everything in it. 1 John goes on to say that those of us that are Christians, we purify ourselves because of the return of Jesus. Peter and Paul both, and John as well, they all talked about the fact that when you grasp the fact that Jesus is coming back, it radically changes the way you live your life now. So we need to be... um, We need to be understanding what God has said about the end so that we can purify ourselves on a daily basis as we look forward to Jesus' return. When we first started out talking about um, the book of Thessalonians back in chapter 1, if you want to turn there. I told you that a major theme of the Thessalonian letters is the encouragement and hope available to the believer because of the certain second coming of Jesus Christ. We came into this, this, this book when Tyson and I, at the very beginning of this church plan, we talked about what book are we going to talk, talk through first? Which, which book are we going to learn together first? And we settled on First and Second Thessalonians. We knew what we were getting ourselves into. We knew this was a, a book that had a lot to do with the second coming of Jesus. And there was going to be some difficult passages that we were going to have to work through. But part of the reason we chose this is because of the purpose our church wants to be. And that's to be a body of believers who are rightly hoping in the return of Jesus. And so we want to know this together. That very first lesson that we did on 1 Thessalonians, I told you that the Bible tells a progressive story of how God plans to save man from his sin through Christ for his glory. The Bible is the unfolding of the seed of the woman, destroying the seed of the serpent. There is a decisive victory won on the cross with ultimate victory coming in the future when death is defeated with the resurrection of the saints. That's what the Bible is about. The Bible is about how God plans to glorify himself by saving mankind from his sin through Christ. It starts in the book of Genesis, but we find out in Scripture that it actually starts before the foundations of the world. That God had a plan to save his people before he ever created anybody. That he planned to to send Christ to die on the cross before he created anything. The cross was not God's plan B, it was always God's plan A. He planned to save man from his sin through Christ for his glory. And the Bible is the unfolding of that story. It starts in the book of Genesis. With Adam and Eve being created, they fall into sin. The punishment for their sin is death. God would have been completely justified to have killed them on the spot as they ate of the fruit. But he doesn't. He reveals his justice, but he also reveals his love and mercy as he communicates to them that, yes, there will be consequences for their sin. Yes, they will eventually die, but not before they begin to procreate. They begin to have children. Because God communicates to Satan as Adam and Eve are listening in, and he says, I'm going to send somebody through Eve who will ultimately defeat you, Satan. 
And in the process, I'm going to rescue back a portion of mankind to me. The Bible is the unfolding of that story. And we see it uh, become more and more clear as we read through the Bible. There's a, there's a huge point that comes about in, in the break between the Old and the New Testament as Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus begins to accomplish everything that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. As Jesus comes and lives a perfect life for us. Because everything in the Old Testament points to the fact that you have to be perfect to get into heaven. God brings the law into effect at Mount Sinai to show the people of Israel. And in effect to show everyone else around that they cannot be good enough. They cannot be good enough to keep God's holy law. We're told that in the New Testament. That the law was given to show our sin. And Jesus Christ shows up on the scene in the New Testament and he lives a perfect life. And the gospel says that Luke has to be perfect to get to heaven. That if he messes up one time, he's guilty of breaking the entire law and he deserves God's wrath for eternity. And the only hope that Luke has for salvation is that Jesus came and lived perfectly for 33 years. And then he dies on the cross and pays for Luke's sin. But because he lived perfectly, he offers perfection to Luke in exchange for that sin. The Bible is the story of how God plans to save each and every one of us through that method. Of Christ, all sufficient work. And eschatology is the conclusion of that work. We've talked already in our in our journey through First Thessalonians that God saves us, but He's not finished with us. He has big plans for our future to change us. He's changing us on a regular basis right now as He sanctifies us, makes us more and more like Christ, with the promise that when Jesus comes back, we will be fully made like Christ. New bodies that do not sin, that do not die. Eschatology is the end chapter of how that all comes about. The Bible is one big story of how God plans to save his people from their sin through Christ for his glory. In approaching the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and following, I told you that we're approaching this not as seeing this as the rapture, but seeing this as the second coming. Part of the argument for the rapture is an understanding by people that, that Israel, God's chosen nation in the Old Testament, and the church are two distinct peoples of God. The rapture allows Jesus to come back for his bride, the church, and to take them out of here. And during that seven years of tribulation, God begins to deal with his people here on this earth, primarily the Jewish people. What I want us to look at today is, is what... The word teaches about God's plan to save his people and who those people are. In your notes there, as we seek to understand the relationship between Israel and the church, some truth to agree on, because there's, there's possibility here that we're going to disagree about some things as we get into this. But some things that we can agree on. Number one, God has always planned to save his people. God has always planned to save his people. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul says the same thing back in 1 Thessalonians 1. That God chose to save his people before the world ever began. So God doesn't react to people's rejection. It's not that God looks at Old Testament Israel and says, wow, Old Testament Israel, disobedient. They've rejected the covenant. Now I'm going to start over with a new people, the church. 
And I'm going to save a, a whole new people that I hadn't planned on saving before. And I'm only doing this because Israel's rejected me. That's not what we see in Scripture. We see in Scripture that God constantly says that this plan was in place before anybody was created. That he had a plan to save his people. Revelation 13, 8, a passage we looked at before, talks about names being written in a book of life before the foundation of the world. That people who were going to get saved, their names were written in this book before they were ever created. I don't know fully what to do with that and how to, how to reconcile that with, with my own emotions. But what I have to see in scripture is that that's what it says. That God had a plan to save his people before he ever created anything. Number two, God promised to save his people in the garden. We've already talked about this. Genesis 3, God made a promise that he was going to do this. He revealed that promise to the first man and woman. He knew about it before the foundation of the world. He now lets mankind in on it to the first man and woman in the garden. and says, let me let you in on something. I plan to save my people. Number three, God promised to save his people through Abraham. God promised to save his people through Abraham. He tells Adam and Eve about this salvation story that he's going to write. That he's going to send somebody through Eve to save everybody. We know that's Jesus. We know that that's why Jesus' uh, family tree is traced all the way back to Adam and Eve. To show that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. That's why it's so important to embrace the humanity of Jesus. Because he's the fulfillment of the seed of Eve to come and rescue us. So we see that picture. But then in, in, in Abraham's life, God kind of expands that picture even further. Up to that point, Revelation simply said... Somebody's going to come from Eve. A man is going to come from Eve to save us. There's even some speculation that the first boy that, that Eve had, she thought was the Messiah. Because there was such a lack of information about what this was going to look like. Then God comes to Abraham and gives further revelation and says, look, I'm going to do this through you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Ultimately, your seed, your descendants are going to be a blessing to the entire world. So he makes that promise to come through Abraham. Number four, God bases my salvation on the work of Christ. Matthew chapter 3 verse 9. There was some confusion that had sprung up in the Jewish people. And they were priding themselves on the fact that, that they were nationally God's chosen people. So they, they, they had reached this point of thinking, because we're Jewish, because we have Abraham as our father, we're okay with God. We're going to spend eternity with him. But in Matthew 3, verse 9, Jesus begins to tear down this mindset. And he says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Jesus says, I am completely unimpressed with the fact that you come from the line of Abraham. I am completely unimpressed with the fact that you are clinging to your Jewishness. Jesus says, I don't, I don't need you. God doesn't need you. If, if God is concerned about raising up a people to worship him, he can do that out of the stones. So you, so you don't offer anything to God, he's telling these Jewish people. Don't cling to your Jewishness. And we begin to see that Jesus just, just continues to teach and try to tear down this mindset that being Jewish does not save. That being a national Jew does not save. Number five. Another thing that we can agree on is that God has always planned to save both Jews and Gentiles. He's always planned to save Jews and Gentiles. Romans 
said that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, also to the Greek, also to the one who is not part of national Israel. We looked at Acts 13 before. That's where uh, Paul had gone to the synagogues and was teaching the gospel to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. They reject it. Remember what Paul says? He says, because of your rejection, we're going to the Gentiles. Remember what remember we kind of looked at the reaction? The Jewish people were like angry, like, get out of here. And when he says, all right, fine, we're going to really start ministering to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles were like, yay, like, come talk to us. We want to hear this. We want to receive this. Come speak to us. It's always been God's plan to save both Jews and Gentiles. We see that even in the Old Testament. As, as heavily Jewish as the Old Testament is, we still see God's desire to save um, Gentiles. Any examples you can think of in the Old Testament of Gentiles, people that weren't Jewish, who were brought into the covenant people of God? Ruth? Alright, Ruth was a Moabite. She was a woman who was living in a foreign country. Uh, Israelite family moves there. She gets married to him. Her husband dies. Her brother-in-law dies. And and the two sisters decide that um, they're going to go back with Naomi to live in Israel. And then Naomi says, no, 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 y'all stay here. So Orpah stays, but Ruth says, absolutely not. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. The implication is that Ruth is brought into the covenant family to the point that she is a descendant, or Jesus becomes a descendant of her. Anybody else you can think of in the Old Testament? Non-Jew that's brought into the covenant people. Rahab, uh, living in Jericho. She is a prostitute. She knows, she knows nothing of God until she begins to hear rumors of what the God of Israel is doing. And she begins to pick up on these stories from men that most likely would stay in her hotel, who she would prostitute herself to. She begins to hear word about this God of Israel and what he's doing. And by the time the spies come into the land, she is confessing that God is the God of everything. And she uses language that Yahweh had told the children of Israel to use towards him. To see him as the creator of everything, the Lord of everything. And she says, I recognize that your God is the creator of everything and the Lord of everything. And she is brought into that covenant line, that covenant people. She is, she is embraced and adopted into the nation of Israel. Uh, a bigger scale is the people of Nineveh. We see that Jonah goes to uh, a town of Nineveh to, to preach the gospel to them, even against his own will. Um, he's not even uh, into the whole idea of seeing these people get saved, but we see repentance happen in the town of Nineveh. So we see that even in the Old Testament, as heavy Jewish as it is, that God had a plan to save Gentiles. And really the purpose for calling out Israel was for them to shine as a light to the Gentiles. That it was always God's plan to save non-Jewish people. That it's never been exclusive just for Jewish people for them to be saved. That God has sought to build a people both of Jew and Gentile. So this, those are things that we can agree on. Now we're going to move into some areas that we might disagree on. Um, but these are some things that in my studies, this is where I'm leaning in understanding the relationship between Israel and the church. Some keys to studying this on your own. Because I want to encourage you not to simply um, eat up everything that I'm saying as though it's gospel truth. And you not go and, and seek the scriptures yourself on some of these things. You don't have to go to the scriptures and see if Jesus is coming back. You can take that as gospel truth from me. Jesus is coming back. 
I don't want you to take it as gospel truth that there's no rapture. I want you to search the scriptures and see what the scriptures have to say. I want you to come and dialogue with me, to dialogue with each other, to wrestle through some of these things that we can disagree on. As long as the mindset is to keep the church unified as we do this. Okay? Always coming back to the fact that we agree on these things. So it never becomes us trying to um, demand that someone change their views on some of these things to be right. That we're simply seeking a deeper understanding of scripture while always coming back to rally around the things that we agree on. Alright, in trying to understand the relationship of the church of Israel, we obviously have to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's some things that can help you. First thing. We must read the Old Testament in light of Jesus coming and the New Testament being written. Alright? Because we live in a time where the New Testament has been written, it's been canonized, we have all 66 books of the Bible, it would be foolish and irresponsible for us to simply try to understand the Old Testament without allowing the New Testament to help us. Now, do we see that pattern in Scripture? Absolutely. We absolutely see that pattern in Scripture. Look in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, this is after Jesus is raised from the dead. He's in Emmaus, which is seven miles from where he was crucified. He is um, talking with these two men on this road to Emmaus. It says in um, verse 27, these guys didn't really recognize Jesus. They're, they're communicating to him, hey, did you hear about Jesus? He died. Uh, it's been three days. You know, We thought he was the Redeemer. We thought he was the Messiah, but apparently he's not. Jesus begins to reveal himself to them. And then it says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a part of that conversation? As Jesus says, let me talk to you about Moses in the Old Testament, and let me show you how everything points to me. I mean, that's the conversation that happens. He says, you guys know the Old Testament, but let me help you understand what you already know. All these things point to me. That's the conversation that he has with these two men. We see this in John 5, 39. Jesus challenging the Pharisees about their knowledge of the Old Testament and the fact that they've missed it. Now, some of you know from Jewish culture, a, a Jewish boy growing up, by different ages, he had to have certain portions of the Old Testament memorized. So these guys knew the Old Testament. In verse 39, Jesus talking to this group of people says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he's instructing them, look. You know the Old Testament, but you're missing it if you don't see that it points to me. You're rejecting me, so you are missing the point of the Old Testament. Last passage we'll look at in uh, Acts 8.35. This is the story of Philip. Uh, being told to go minister to the Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian eunuch is traveling through the desert. Somehow he's come across a copy of a scroll of the book of Isaiah. He's reading it, trying to understand it, but he is so confused he doesn't know what's going on. Another testimony to the fact that the way people get saved is when God sends preachers or teachers or Christians to communicate the gospel to them. 
That this guy picks up a Bible and just doesn't get it, doesn't understand it. And God ordains the fact that Philip will go to him and tell him about the gospel. Look what it says in verse 39, or verse uh, 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So we see a precedent in scripture of New Testament teachers using the Old Testament and showing how it points to Jesus. So as we seek to understand the Old Testament, we have to read and study the Old Testament in light of the fact that Jesus has come. He has fulfilled a lot of what the Old Testament points to. And the New Testament a lot of times gives us clarity about the Old Testament, which is point number two. We must look for where the New Testament sheds light on how to understand the promises of the Old Testament. We must look for where the New Testament sheds light on how to understand the promises of the Old Testament. We see this beautifully in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is teaching a sermon on the day of Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit is going to come and indwell the people of the church. And he begins to quote the book of Joel. He says, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. He goes on to list a bunch of things. Peter says, that passage is happening right now. So what does that mean? If I go study the book of Joel and I come across this passage, I need not sit and wonder, I wonder when that's going to happen. I wonder if that's already happened. No, I've got the New Testament that tells me, yep. This already happened. It's what some theologians call divine hermeneutics. Divine hermeneutics. It's when God inspires New Testament people to tell us things about the Old Testament that have already happened. It's divine commentary. You know, we we talk sometimes about study notes in the ESV Bible, commentaries that you read. Those are not inspired. John Piper's not inspired. John MacArthur's not inspired. These guys give really good opinions and perspectives about Scripture, but we can't trust that it's inspired coming directly from God because God hasn't revealed that. He does take certain teachers in the New Testament and divinely inspires them to tell us about the Old Testament. So we look for ways that the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament. And then lastly, we should expect to see a heavy Jewish feel in the Old Testament that steadily decreases in the New Testament. We would expect in the Old Testament to see a ton about the Jewish people. We would expect to see very little about the Gentiles. Why? Because the New Testament tells us, and Tyson talked about it last week, that there's a mystery about God's people, a mystery about the gospel that was not known in the Old Testament. Look in um, Romans 16. Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. There was a mystery about it. The people in the Old Testament... They didn't fully understand. We see this also in Ephesians 3. Um, 
Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, talking about Paul, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So we would expect, if we went to the Old Testament, to not really pick up on a lot of Gentile church perspective because we're told in the New Testament it was a mystery. It was hidden largely to all the prophets in the Old Testament. They didn't fully understand it. It would have probably blown their mind to get a glimpse and a picture of what's happening on the earth today. That there are Christians in every single nation around the earth. If you had told some of the prophets in the Old Testament who were killing themselves trying to get some people in Israel to listen to them. I mean, if you pulled Amos and these guys aside and said, you're not going to believe this. Um... In the year 2012, there are going to be so many Christians, they are all over the earth. People that submit to Yahweh. He'd have been like, are you serious? Like, like that is so beyond my level of thinking right now. It was a mystery in the Old Testament that was further revealed in the New Testament. Alright? Alright, there are four questions I want us to try to answer real quick together today. Question number one. Has God failed in saving Israel? As we're trying to understand Israel versus the church... Some questions that come up that I think Scripture answers very clearly. Did God fail in dealing with Israel and then replace Israel with the church in the New Testament? Is that what God has done? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In Romans 9, 1-8, through 8, Paul very clearly tells us that Israel has not been replaced and that God has not failed with Israel. Romans chapter 9, verses 1-8. through 8. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, I'm in anguish over the fact that the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus. Paul says, the reason I'm in anguish is because I'm a Jew. And these guys should be getting it. They should be understanding it. They should be embracing their Messiah that they've been waiting on for so long. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says if anybody should be getting this, it should be the Jewish people. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul begins to to relay this idea that being a national Jew is not what it means to be a true covenant Jew. He's continuing the same theme of Jesus. He's tearing down the mindset of the Jewish national cling to the flesh, cling to my right as a national Jew. He says, God hasn't failed. God always planned to save a portion of Israel, the believing portion of Israel. He always set aside what is called in Scripture a remnant. A remnant of Israel would be saved. So no, God hasn't failed in saving Israel. Number two, is there any advantage to being a Jew then? Absolutely. If, 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 if we're saying that being a national Jew doesn't save you, then what's the big deal about being a Jew? Is there any advantage? 
Scripture gives us clear indication that there is. Romans chapter 3, verse 2. Romans chapter 3, verse 2. Paul hypothetically asked the question. He says, so what advantage is there to being a Jew? Is there any advantage? And Paul says, absolutely. They were given the oracles of God. Meaning that to reveal the gospel to this earth, God chose a nation in the Old Testament. He chose Israel. He needed a nation to act as a light to other nations. He needed a nation to write the Old Testament to. He needed a nation to bring his Messiah through. They get all the benefits and privileges of being exposed to Yahweh in the Old Testament. They've got all the family history to point them to the Messiah. It's similar to the advantage that Luke and Libby had growing up in the Schwarting household. Does this growing up in a church family, in a Christian family, save them? Absolutely not. It does no good for Luke and Libby to grow up and say, Hey, we grew up in a Christian family. We are saved. We are going to heaven. No. No, you're not, you're not a Christian because you grew up in a, in a Christian family. You're only a Christian if you respond to the gospel. Well, is there any advantage in growing up in a Christian family? Absolutely. Think about the advantage there is for someone like Luke or Libby or Logan growing up in the Schwarting household in comparison to someone who's being raised in Iraq right now in an Islamic family. Who's getting the gospel at the age of four and five and six? Not the people growing up in the Islamic family. So absolutely there's advantages to being a Jew. Paul says, absolutely. They had all kinds of advantages pointing them to Jesus. So it's not that it just completely disregards national Israel. Absolutely not. Huge advantage to being a Jew. Psalm 147, 19 through 20. Talking about the advantages of being the Jew. He says, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Psalmist says, absolutely there's advantage of being Jews because God has revealed himself to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. He gave them his law. He didn't give it to the other nations. The children of Israel had special revelation that other nations didn't have. Doesn't guarantee their salvation. Just means they have high, high privileges that point them to the Messiah. Number three, who actually is called the descendant of Abraham or a true Jew or a real Jew in Scripture? I believe Paul gives us a picture of illustrating who God's people is through the illustration of a seed and through the illustration of a tree. Illustration of a seed and the illustration of a tree. First is that God made a promise to Abraham in the Old Testament. You can write as much of this down as you want to, and I can give it to you later if you miss something. God made a promise to Abraham in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 13, Genesis chapter 17. He said, I'm making a covenant with your descendants. Your descendants will be my covenant people. That's what's told to us in the Old Testament. Now, if we're using the rules that I told you at the beginning, does the New Testament help us understand that any better? We're told that, that God is, is going to bless the descendants of Abraham. Does the New Testament help us better understand who those descendants are? Absolutely. Galatians 3.16. Galatians 3.16 
Ephesians 3.16, this is Paul talking, and, and he's arguing about the, um, the benefits of the New Covenant versus the Old Covenant and, and the law and how it points to the promise of Jesus. Now, the promises, verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul seems to be indicating that the promise given to Abraham's descendants is ultimately a covenant with Christ. Who's the descendant of Abraham? Jesus. Who do the covenant promises belong to? Jesus. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the descendants of Abraham. God's promises and covenants are with Jesus Christ. So that's the seed of who Abraham is, according to Paul. Was that the only members of Abraham's family? No. We're told in John 8, 39-44 that it's not just national Jews. National Jews aren't considered descendants of Abraham in the New Testament. Instead, it's those who believe that are considered the seed of Abraham because they are in Christ, the true seed. Romans 2, 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In Romans 4.11. He received the sign of circumcision, talking about Abraham, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. To make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It's the children of faith that are called the children of Abraham in the New Testament. We see this in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, Galatians 3. We don't have time to look at all these passages, but they all reaffirm what I just read to you. That it's about believing in Christ that makes you in Christ. Paul says the seed of Abraham is Jesus. If you want to be considered the seed of Abraham, you've got to get into Jesus. You've got to be in Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is to be saved. Not to be a national Jew. Not to be a part of a certain nation. Anybody can be in Christ and become the seed of Abraham. That's what we're told in the New Testament. The New Testament is helping us see better who the promised descendants are. Believing Gentiles become fellow heirs of the covenant promises. We see this also in Romans chapter... um, Romans chapter 11. We see it illustrated with a seed. We see it illustrated with a tree. In Romans chapter 11, we don't have time to read through all this. I would encourage you to read it on your own. In Romans chapter 11, we are told kind of an understanding of who God's people are. It says it started with Israel. God wanted to save a remnant of national Israel. But due to a large portion of rejection, God began to work with the Gentiles, which was always his plan. And he illustrates it with a, with a picture of an olive tree. He said, here's an olive tree. It's got branches that are true Jewish people that are saved. 
And he says, I take Gentile Christians, people who have responded to the gospel, and I graft them in. Unnatural branches that are, that are put into the tree. And then he goes on to say, at the end of Romans chapter 11, the Jewish people that have rejected Christ, the invitation still exists for them to get saved. And there's even a, a possible prophecy about, in the end, a large portion of national Israel getting saved. But Paul says, they're going to be part of the covenant people the same way the unnatural branches will be. They'll be grafted back into this tree. That it's one tree. It's one people of God. And it's got branches that are Gentiles and branches that are national Jewish people. How do you become a seed of Abraham? You believe in the gospel. If you're a national Jew, you get in the same way. You believe in Christ. You make up one body, one people of God. There's never any idea of Jewish people getting in any other way. And as I told you, the church isn't replacing Israel. It's not that God looks at the olive tree and says, I wish it had more branches. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uproot the tree, get rid of it, and plant a new tree. And we'll call it the church. That's not what happens. God takes existing Israel, true Israel, believing Jews, and he brings Gentiles into it. He expands our understanding of what Israel is. He expands our understanding of what God's people is. That it includes both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. So question number four, does the church now replace Israel in God's plans? No. God has not uprooted the tree and replaced it with a new one. Instead, God has brought foreign branches to the tree, expanding the tree. The church doesn't replace Israel. Instead, believing Gentiles are added to believing Israel as the covenant people of God that enjoy his promises. The church and Israel continue to be the chosen people of God. Two different titles for the name of God's people. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, and Deuteronomy 7 and 6. If you want to jot those two down, again, we're running out of time, so we're not going to be able to look at all these verses. Exodus 19, 5 through 6, Deuteronomy 7 and 6. Both those passages are talking to national Israel. God says, I'm calling you out as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a set-apart family, a set-apart people. He uses the exact same language for the church in 1 Peter 2, 9. Talking to the church, he says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy people, a set-apart group for me. The same type of language for Old Testament Israel, God's people, being used for the church in the New Testament, not in replacing Israel, but giving us an expanded view of who Israel actually is. It's not national Israel. It's believing Israel and believing Gentiles. Then lastly, in the New Testament, God continued his plan. Saving his people, a people that is better understood in the New Testament now that the mystery is revealed. Remember, Old Testament, they didn't fully understand this. What we get in the New Testament is that God's people includes both Jews and Gentiles. The gospel goes to the Jew and the Gentile in Romans 1.16. Paul's method for church planting. Here's, to me, a big support for the fact that the Jew and the Gentile are not separate groups of God's people. That the church and Israel are separate. Because when Paul... When Paul was seeking to plant churches, where did he go first? What was his method? He went to the synagogues to talk to the Jewish people. I'm here to build a church. If it's separate, if it's distinct from God's national people, why would you go to national people first? The very beginning of the church, the first church members are Jewish. The church planters are Jewish. 
We don't see a divided picture in the New Testament. In fact, in Ephesians 2, it says that Jesus came to tear down the walls to make one new man. To make one new man, to bridge the gap, to put it together. What if God does have two people? I told you that there's obviously some really good people that would would see a, a distinction between the two. This view holds that the church is God's heavenly people and Israel is God's earthly people. Why does this matter? Why are we talking about this? Well, I told you because the more we know about the end, the more encouraged we are about what what it looks like. It keeps us enduring and it keeps us enduring in our faith and encouraged. To believe that Israel and the church are separate carries all the way into eschatology. Because to view them separately, people that hold to that view, see the church as God's heavenly people, meaning that we spend eternity in heaven, and the church or the Israel is God's earthly people, and they experience God here on this earth. It's a separated group for eternity. Which to me doesn't sound like the one new man that God is trying to build in Ephesians 2. Secondly, the rapture is God coming for the church so that God can deal with Israel during the tribulation. I told you that at the beginning. Some problems that I begin to feel is, where does Paul go for eternity? Like, like when, when God is separating his people, Israel and church, where does Paul fall? Because Paul obviously considered himself part of the church, right? Like he planted churches. He refers to himself with the same language that he's talking to his Gentile believers with. But he's a Jew. So who would Paul consider himself to be a part of, Israel or the church? And then if, if, if the rapture were to happen... I can't figure out what happens to Christian Jews because there's tons of Christian Jews on this earth. If it's separate and God's coming back for the church, do they have to stay? Do they have to stay because they're national Jewish people? Because they're separate from the church? These are some problems that I'm wrestling with trying to figure out. How does this harmonize with what the New Testament has to say? The application for us is that God is working to save his one people, a multitude which cannot be numbered, That includes all nations. Revelation 7 gives us a picture of that. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we related by faith to the one seed of Abraham for whom the covenant promises were intended? If you are in Christ, then regardless of ethnicity, gender, or social status, you are Abraham's seed and part of the people the covenant was intended for and in whom the covenant blessings will be fulfilled. All right, last two things I want to share with you. If you have to go, I understand you can go. This is um, continuing to understand how these two work together. There's some promises in the Old Testament made to Israel. Promises that we have to determine how are they going to be fulfilled. Two of them that I want to look at real quickly. Will the land promises to Israel be fulfilled, meaning that Israel will be gathered back to the promised land? Because there's promises in the Old Testament about God giving that land to them. And then secondly, will the temple be rebuilt? Will Israel be restored according to what the Old Testament has to say? Real quick, how should we understand the land promises to Israel? Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17. God's covenant with Abraham. I'm giving this land to your descendants forever. The New Testament helps us see an expanded view of this promise, showing that God intends to give the new earth to his people, which is far greater than just Canaan. You see this pattern in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament constantly. Better things always come in the New Testament. If you've ever read the book of Hebrews, you read the book of Hebrews. Author of Hebrews, who we don't know exactly who it is, says, 
Remember Moses? Man, what a great prophet. Like, I love Moses. He's such, he's such a great prophet. And then he says, Jesus is better. Jesus is a better prophet. He talks about priests and he says, man, priests were good. But Melchizedek, what a great priest. Jesus better. He talks about the animal sacrifices. He says, some really good things that went on in the Old Testament, those animal sacrifices. Man, that was, it was good. It reminded us of our sin. We constantly came and brought it to, to the temple. Jesus is better. Better sacrifice. We constantly see the way that God was working with Israel in the Old Testament expanded on in the New Testament, and we're given a better picture of how it's better in Jesus. I think we see the same thing with the promised land. In Hebrews 11, 9 through 10. Talking about Abraham, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Author Hebrews seems to indicate that Abraham had a bigger perspective on what he was looking forward to beyond just this temporal land of Canaan. Because he was looking forward to a heavenly city. We see that in um, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out. They would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It says that ultimately Abraham's desire was for a heavenly city, something greater than the land of Canaan. Psalm 37.11 says that the meek will inherit the land. What do we have in Matthew 5.5? 5, 5? The meek will inherit what? The earth. Not just the land of Canaan, but the earth. We see an expanded perspective on what God has promised to his people. Romans 4.13 um, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. I mean, where does it say that in the Old Testament? It says that he was promised the land of Canaan. Here's another example of the New Testament shedding better light on what was promised in the Old Testament. Abraham's not just getting the land of Canaan. His people are inheriting the entire world. I think we can see the land promises to Israel, which understanding Israel is both Gentile and Jew. That God has promised to give us the new earth as our inheritance. That he plans to keep his covenant. And the New Testament gives us a better idea of how he plans to do that. Then lastly, how should we understand the rebuilt temple and the restoration of Israel promises? I believe God's fulfilling these promises through the building of the church. Turn to Amos chapter 9. We're close to being done. Promises. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, talking about the temple, and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. 
They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, how in the world can I argue that that's about the church? I mean, what does that sound like? That, that God's going to rebuild the temple for Israel. He's going to gather them back to the land, right? And here I'm up here saying, I think that's about the church. Well, conveniently I can do that because of Acts 15. I don't have to do it. James did it. In Acts chapter 15, there's uproar about the fact that Gentiles are getting saved. Remember, it's a mystery. And Jewish people are going, what in the world is going on? This is supposed to be about Jewish people and we got a bunch of Gentiles running around saying they got the Holy Spirit inside of them. So they have a council to get together to figure out what is going on. It says, all the assembly in verse 12 fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, talking about Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. He's quoting the passage from Amos. A passage that sounds like the temple has to be rebuilt so that uh, a remnant of Eden can be saved. James says, guys, do you realize what's going on here? Amos prophesied that this was going to happen. God's doing something very special here with Jews and Gentiles building this church. This is what we call a divine hermeneutic. A passage that on the surface in the Old Testament, hey, we should be looking for a rebuilt temple. James says, nope, this is happening right now. God's building a temple not made with hands, made of a people of God, of Jews and Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, Ephesians 2, talk about God's people being a temple. You can't discount the wordage that's being used there, especially if we're looking to understand the Old Testament better by reading the New Testament. And we won't look at these verses, but in, in Hosea 2.23, there's a prophecy to the ten northern tribes that God plans to um, make a people out of them. But then in Romans 9.25-26, that same passage is quoted talking about the church. In uh, Revelation 3, 9, it talks about how the, um, he's talking to the church and he talks about how national Jewish people who think they're saved and are not and have been persecuting that church, he talks about how he's going to make them bow down to them. It's the same language used in the Old Testament about how God planned to make Gentiles bow down to national Israel. But we begin to see that he's talking about true Israel and how lost people will bow down to the church. Some couple other passages that we just don't have time to go into today. These last few points are things that we can disagree on. You don't have to believe that Israel and the church are one people of God. And it's okay to believe that. There are people that I respect greatly. One of my most respected professors at Liberty. I listened to him speak recently on how Israel and the church are separate. And that one day the temple will be rebuilt and sacrifices will be offered. That we're going to go back to the way the Old Testament functioned. And I listened to him say that and I was just like, 
Like, what are you talking about? Like, the whole book of Hebrews says that that stuff's passing away, that it's fulfilled in Jesus. But this is a man who is far more educated than me, that has looked at the scriptures and determined to interpret it this way. So it's something that we can, we can disagree on. We can disagree on these things. But what I'm not content to do is to just say, I don't understand it and I'm not going to understand it. There is a ton of stuff that we can learn together. And we may not get it all right. But what I'm not content to say is that it'll just all work out in the end and, and I'll just wait and see how it happens. Because God has told me there's blessings for learning this and studying this. There's blessing from trying to understand how the book of Revelation and the Old Testament fit together. He gave us these prophecies for a reason. And I want to know them and understand them the best that I can. Recognizing that I'm not perfect, there's going to be areas that I'm wrong in. But I'm not content to just sit back and be like, oh, I'll just figure it out when it happens. Um, any, I'm going to pray for us and then... You can go, but if you have questions and you want to ask, then I encourage you to stick around. I'll take questions, and and we'll see if we can answer those as best we can. So let's pray. God, I pray that our time together today would not just simply be a a time of lecture about deep things of Scripture. God, we want to bring it back to the fact that 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul told the church, I'm teaching you things about the end times to encourage you. He wanted that church to understand the, the truth of Jesus' return so they could be encouraged, so they could endure in their faith. And God, that's my desire. God, I don't want us to just uh, talk about these things like we're, like we're in a school setting, just to build up our knowledge and puff up our, our information and, and become prideful in them. God, I want us to know what your plans are for your people. So that when we read scripture, we can be encouraged when we read promises for your people. That we can identify who your people are. We can identify where we fit into that. God, I pray that we would have a love for seeing how the Bible unfolds this big story of how you plan to save your people from their sin through Christ for your glory. That in studying this, God, that you would receive glory from it. God, I thank you for the encouragement that you gave to me. Over these past couple of weeks as I've been looking at this. God, I find myself worshiping you more because of how you've revealed yourself in your word and how you've revealed your plan to save your people. God, I pray that we would all be encouraged in this, that we would be driven to search this in scripture to better understand what your plans are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Questions before you leave? If you got to leave, then feel free to go, but I don't want to cut anybody off and I don't want to leave a point confusing that that maybe I can better clarify. I think the big points to keep in mind is that that everything that God's planned to do with Israel, he's going to do. What I see from scripture is that Gentiles just get included into that plan. And even if God does plan to rebuild the temple and and give his people the land of Canaan, um, I simply see that as including all of God's people and not just a certain section. Because all through the New Testament, Gentiles and Jews are seen as co-heirs of the promise. So definitely where I'm at right now is that whatever God plans to do with his people, he's going to do it. But I'm a part of it. And I'm included in that because I've been grafted in. And um, that's just where I'm strongly leaning in that area. Any questions maybe that, that leaves with you that I can clarify if need be?
We're going to continue talking about, over the next few weeks, different aspects of um, eschatology because all these things are, are hopefully going to help you see why we're going to approach verses 13 and following as the second coming and not the rapture. Um, and this is kind of part one of that scene that if Israel and the church have been brought together, then it lessens the need for there to be a rapture and a time for God to deal with national Israel because he's got one people. So... Look forward to continuing to share and teach and learn together, um, all the while bringing it back to what we do agree on, that Jesus is coming back and we can rejoice and celebrate that together. All right?